0: In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to take a question from one of our listeners about the discrepancies or the differences between the teachings of the Second Vatican Council and the realities that transpired. Please enjoy this conversation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of Saint Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the Director of Faith Formation at the St. Philip Institute. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the Second Vatican Council and the way that following the Council... There have been a lot of challenges, so we're going to mostly focus throughout this series that we're doing on the Second Vatican Council on what the documents teach, um, the way that they were meant to be understood, and that sort of thing, but we didn't want to leave off a conversation about the difficulties and struggles that the Church has been through following the Council as sort of a last afterthought to the, at the very end. So after having done our last two episodes on the document on the liturgy, um, we thought it would be just a, a good time to kind of acknowledge some of the realities that transpired after the Council, and in particular ways in which they may not have really been following the directives of the documents. So if you listen to either of the episodes on the liturgy, uh, that we did, you'll notice uh, many times I emphasize the document Sacrosanctum Concilium gives very careful and limited uh, uh, you know, exceptions for, for instance, the use of the vernacular and says that before any changes are implemented, proper authorities have to be involved uh, and have to have permission. And I think largely that permission was real and it did happen. But there were a lot of things that happened in the liturgy in particular following the council in which priests were not exercising uh or were were exercising more authority in terms of changing more things than they really had any claim to based on the document i think everybody can can recognize that that was a, a reality um and and a difficulty so just to kind of get into this conversation we actually had a very very thoughtful um really really excellent comment question on one of our previous episodes um so somebody asked and i think the the guy's name was brian i forget his last name uh, for apologies brian I don't, I don't remember uh for sure what your last name is asked some really good questions, and I actually just want to read the questions that he had and kind of work through responding to them and then make a, a couple of other just general comments about the, the reality that there is a council, there are these documents, and then what happened, right? So here's, here's what he said. He said, Dr. Luke, if the goals of Vatican II were the four things that you listed, which is what's at the beginning of Sacrosanctum Concilium, um, how well did the council achieve them? He says, I understand the liturgy wasn't static from the first century up through the 1962 Missal, and that's true, and it's really good to recognize that, so I appreciate that. He says, I understand that when reading the actual documents of Vatican II, like Sacrosanctum Concilium, they sound reasonable and perhaps even noble. How do we get to the Novus Ordo from where the Council started with its stated goals and documents like Sacrosanctum Concilium? Um, So this is a a really interesting question about how we got to the new Missal because, you know, if if you just read Sacrosanctum Concilium and look for um, explicit details about exactly how the Mass is to be renewed, you will find some, for instance, a wider reading of Scripture, There's got to be a homily on Sundays. Let's restore the prayers of the faithful and let's simplify things. But those are, in, in many ways, pretty generic prescriptions. So there's actually a really long process between that document and the Missal of Paul VI, which comes out in 1969 and goes into effect in 1970. There's actually a really excellent article on this on the Church Life Journal from the McGrath Institute, um, and I'll post a link to that um, in the comments. It kind of gives some of the inner workings. But during the Council, there were experimental liturgies kind of working on, okay, we have the, the Latin Mass, we want to make this more accessible. What if we did this? And so the, the bishops there were seeing some of these masses celebrated. There was, um, you know, draft documents, and there was a commission set up. Um, but I think the important thing to remember is that throughout the whole process, you know, the Vatican is involved. The pope was, was involved. St. Paul VI um, knew what was going on. So, so it, it is true that if you just read Sacrosanctum Concilium, you know, it's not. it doesn't say everything that you see in the Novus Ordo Mass simply because it wasn't a missal. It was a sort of a, a theological and pastoral account of what needs to happen with their liturgy, why it's important, and where we need to take care. Um, actually, just recently I discovered the the introduction to the general instruction to the Roman Missal, which is, I mean, it's was a stupid uh, string of words there, but the germ, uh, the instruction on the Ro- general instruction on the Roman Missal, the introduction to that gives us very very good account of why the Mass of Paul the Sixth actually is a really uh, profan- has a really profound connection to the Mass of Paul V, which is you know, you know a, a way of saying the Council of Trent's Mass, um, and and it's that in both cases Trent and Vatican II, the Church was really trying to give a liturgy to the faithful that was going to make the doctrine clear, but also be pastorally sensitive to the needs of the time. And what are the needs of the time at the Council of Trent? Well, there was a big fight with Protestantism. Protestants were rejecting the reality of the Eucharist, so the Eucharist had to be promoted and defended and protected in a very, very austere, you know, I don't know, austere way, but a very serious way in the liturgy. It had to be really, really clear that this is a, a divine reality and that sort of thing, um, and that it's, you know, its celebration was was important. And of course, that's still true, but the context of that fight with Protestantism um, is is really clear. So, for instance, in the Proceedings of Trent, there's discussions about uh, or the, the germ at least, says that there, there are discussions about a request for the use of the vernacular. But in the context of the Council of Trent, to allow Mass to be celebrated in the vernacular would have made it seem as though Luther— was correct, that you can't celebrate Mass in Latin because that's no good. You need the vernacular, and the Council wanted to preserve the right of the Church to, to con- continue with its, liter- its language, you know, its heritage of Latin, um, so it did not want to start allowing Catholics to have Mass in the vernacular because it would have been very difficult uh, to distinguish between them and Protestants, who were then celebrating similar liturgies in some ways, but of course, in the vernacular, there's also the whole idea about um, the reception of the Eucharist um, in under both species. Um, that this was uh, something that was was part of the conversation with with Protestants. So, anyways, if you if you read the introduction to the germ, the G I R M, um, it's really really clear uh, about the unity of the Mass of Paul the Sixth and, and of Paul the and of Paul the Sixth, and that. In the Liturgy of Vatican II, we no longer had to fight problems or questions about is it allowable to celebrate a Mass other than in Latin, because nobody at that point was super concerned with, you know, uh, if if you celebrate something in Latin. English for instance or Spanish you're going to look like a Protestant people are going to be confused about whether or not you're Catholic but at Trent that actually was uh, part of it feast days also the feast days are simplified after the Second Vatican Council at the time of of Trent you know w- one of Luther's critiques was about how Catholics would keep to so many feast days and that they didn't understand you know um, the, 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 the that the Saints were too important in that sort of way and that feast days were sort of like a, a man-made idea. The Council of Trent would not concede to that at all, and and maintained everything as it was. By the 1960s at Vatican II, that was less of a major concern. That if we if we simplify the calendar, you know. People aren't going to think we've given up on feast altogether. together. Um, so that's this is part of the the discussion. So, anyways, that's that's a, that's a, a place I would I would recommend reading um, because it really gives some some very very good clarity about um, sort of the the relationship between the new mass uh, of Paul the sixth or the missal of Paul the sixth and the traditional Latin mass. So Brian um, goes on to ask, and and this is a very good first question, but he goes on to say, in your opinion, your personal opinion, how well does the Novus Ordo help Catholics make the connection with the mystery of the Eucharist? And how do you see the Novus Ordo compared to the TLM in regards to this connection of mystery? And I think that's an excellent question. I have uh, attended a Latin Mass many times. Uh, At one point in my life, um, I went... Almost exclusively to the Latin Mass for like six or seven months, um, so I have a, a decent amount of experience with it. And it's not like it's been you know my lifelong practice, and I I can certainly see um, a, a certain sense of transcendence and of mystery in that liturgy. Um, p- partly because you you know you don't know what's going on if you're not if someone's not helping you, you just. There, there is a sense of, of being kind of caught up into something, and I don't think that you can't be caught up that way in a, in a Novus Ordo liturgy, like, at all. Um, for, for instance, in our diocese here in Tyler, at the cathedral, there is a beautiful um, Novus Ordo Mass that really is one of the most beautiful liturgies I've ever attended, just any Typical Sunday liturgy at the cathedral in Tyler, I think, is is beautiful, really, really well done. Um, there's incense, there's great music, there's great reverence, um, and you know, uh, the, the the Eucharist is treated like like an like an actual mystery. So I, I think that uh, the Novus Ordo can certainly help Catholics see the mystery. What the Council is talking about, and what I was trying to explain in in the previous episodes, was that uh, the Mass itself. Needs to be taught to people, and this is the, the, what the council is saying: is for people to just come to a liturgy, however well the liturgy is done. If they don't understand what's happening, then it, then, then they're missing a part of it. So you can have the most aesthetically, liturgically rich, you know, uh, Mass that, that you can imagine, um, but if there's not enough catechesis done, enough preparation for it, it's it's just not gonna it's just not gonna make any sense. So. I think that's true of the TLM, and it's and it's also true of the Novus Ordo. For instance, the connection between the first reading at, at a typical Sunday Mass and the Gospel. I don't actually know how many Catholics are critically looking for what's the connection between this first reading and the Gospel. Where's the covenant connection? Where's the the typology and the fulfillment? Um, or you know what is the the biblical prayers that are that are being offered here, for instance, when you know if you're using the first Eucharistic prayer and there's a mention of Melchizedek, like why is that important? Uh, what was Melchizedek's sacrifice? Uh, what what did you know he offer as a priest? He offered bread and wine. Um, the you know the the gifts of um, of Abraham, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. You know there's there's so many biblically rich things going on just in the regular English prayers of the Novus Ordo that. If you don't know anything about it, can just go f- straight past you. Um, but to have some catechesis, you can enter into it deeply. So I think in both cases, in the Novus Ordo or in the traditional Latin Mass, there there is a great mystery. There's, it's, I mean, the Eucharist is being celebrated, uh, and in both cases, I think a lot of catechesis is needed. I think personally, as he asked my personal opinion, you probably need more help to connect with the mystery in in the TLM, and I don't mean that, you know, you, you, you have to be smarter or something, but it takes more work to be able to sort of engage in what's happening, because it, it is more, uh, you know, more removed from, from, from your experience. You're not hearing the words that the priest is saying, except for when he turns around every now and then and says, Oratis fratres, or, or whatever, whatever the, the vocal out loud things are. There's some guesswork um, I've noticed with the speed of, of, of a priest celebrating the, the Eucharistic Canon you don't know exactly how fast he's going so you' got to follow his motions and stuff so there's there's work I think in both cases um, this is a great question. As I said this is a, it's a great comment uh, on, on our on our YouTube so I'm really excited about this kind of this kind of engagement um, Another question says in your opinion, how were all of the great Saints of the Catholic Church throughout the centuries prior to Vatican II able to evangelize so much more effectively than what has been seen since Vatican II or do you believe the evangelization efforts have been more fruitful since Vatican II? I think that's a that's a really great question It's also really tough to to quantitatively say you know whose evangelization efforts were better those before the Second Vatican Council or those after the Second Vatican Council for a couple of reasons one is, you know, prior to the Second Vatican Council, you had 1,962 years, so that's this huge window in which there were, of course, many wildly successful evangelists, and I'm sure also many who stunk at it, Um, and since the council, we've only had just 60 years since the opening of the council, Um, so 57 since the close of it. Uh, so it's a little bit hard to compare those huge that that huge historical time period before to this little you know period afterward. I think you can certainly point to grand evangelists since the Second Vatican Council. Um, I mean, talking about Mother Teresa, for instance, Saint John Paul II. Those are two that come to mind. Fulton Sheen is not really a figure who's who's a post-Vatican II figure, but he he was alive, did a lot of his work after the Second Vatican Council unbelievable evangelist, but he also was around prior to the council. So, uh, I, I don't think you can say that uh, prior to the Second Vatican Council, the church was just an expert at evangelization. Since the council, we've stunk. and I, I don't think you can say the opposite either, that we were no good before, and now we're just pros at it. I think in every case, evangelization is a work of the Holy Spirit, um, and it is, it is a difficult thing, and it doesn't always bear fruit, even if you are the evangelist himself, Jesus Christ, did not successfully evangelize every person that he interacted with. In fact, in many of his most important moments, people abandoned him. When he taught about the Eucharist, people left. When he was on the cross, only John was there, um, you know, of, of, his, of the 12. So um, it's, a good, it's a good question. It's, a, it's an interesting thing, thing to think about. I want to recognize great evangelical efforts before the council, and after the council, and I want to recognize failures before the council and after the council. I think the church struggles with evangelization and has success in every age. Um, so, anyways, that's that's my personal thoughts there. Uh, another question, as far as the interior participation of the laity at the Novus Ordo, how do you see it manifested in increased vigor compared to the pre-Vatican II liturgy? This is a really good critique, or, or question. Um, just personally, and I don't know that this is the case for everybody, I do find it a little bit easier to have an internal participation kind of stirred up in, in me when I'm at a, at, a, uh, at a Latin Mass or, interestingly, when I'm at a Mass in Spanish. Now I speak Spanish, but it's my second language, and it takes more work for me, to pay attention in Spanish to, to catch on to what's being said um, And I so I notice for myself I go to Mass in English Now I also am going to Mass in English With five kids usually And I, who knows how much of the Mass I'm sitting there for My wife and I are tag teaming Our, our two year old toddler who just wants to go do Whatever he, he feels like And our other kids who you know sometimes are great And sometimes aren't uh, But when I go to a Mass in English Assuming it's a relatively quiet Mass In terms of my kids behavior I, I don't always feel like I've really deeply connected with something. I'll, I can be honest about that. I try really hard. Uh, when I'm going to a mass in a different language, whether that's in Latin or in Spanish, I do find that I'm that I'm, you know, internally a little bit more tuned in. And I think part of that is just the necessity of I've got to try harder to keep up with what's going on, whether it's in Spanish or in Latin. Um, so I don't I don't think it's necessarily an issue of the the liturgy that's being celebrated. I just think like. The, the, the change in language requires me to—gets gets me somehow out of my, you know, space where I can zone out and helps me to, you know, in, internally be more uh, participating in the liturgy. At the same time, on a feast day like Good Friday or the Easter Vigil, in English, I— am always deeply drawn into that liturgy. And I I don't struggle and go, gosh, I wish this was in Latin or or Spanish so I could really connect with what's going on, right? So I think it's a matter of just being open um, to the movement of the Holy Spirit and not being distracted by things. I don't think it has so much to do with the form of liturgy, whether that's the Novus Ordo or a traditional Latin mass. One last question. Uh, if the intent was truly to increase the content of Scripture in the liturgy, then why were so many of the prayers of, of the introit, gradual, and offertory, which were scriptural, removed? And I think that's a fair question. Um, there is more scriptural content in uh, the readings of the Novus Ordo Mass, uh, although, you know, in particularly in the, with the gradual, um, you know, some of those things, uh, I think we do miss. And so this is one of the things where I think, there is, there is a good dialogue and a fruitful and useful dialogue between communities of people who attend the Novus Ordo Mass or and who attend um, the, tr- the traditional Latin Mass in terms of the ways both of them can benefit one another. And, and I think that's a healthy conversation to have. Um, I know when we had our Eucharistic Congress here in the Diocese of Tyler, um, Archbishop Cordelione from San Francisco was here, and, and he made that point that he sees cross-fertilization between a well celebrated liturgical, I mean, a Novus Ordo Mass, and a well celebrated traditional Latin Mass. That both of those communities, both of those experiences, can shape one another and speak to one another. So, um, those that's the comments that we got from Brian. Um, I, I do want to make just a couple more comments, um, uh, as as we you know kind of just just to get it out in, into the air with with this with this series on Vatican II, uh, that that I, we can and and do recognize difficulties after the council. That's how councils go. <laughs> if you study any any council um, in the history of the church, after a council, it is not as though, oh, then all of the problems are solved. Um, it, it is a long, slow process. There have certainly been failures in some places, in some parts of the church and and uh, some parts of the world. Um, and there has been, I think, in many in many of those instances, the failure was to ignore precisely, the documents themselves. And, and I know this is one of the reasons that Bishop Barron and, and the Word on Fire, um, you know, pr- produced this volume is because they think these documents themselves haven't gotten enough study. Um, but I also think we should not be so naive as to imagine that if you just read the documents. Uh, then everything's going to be fixed. <laughs> the documents are important, but there's 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 other things that need to happen um, too. Um, so all councils are are difficult, slow processes. But there have also been since the Second Vatican Council, you know, wild successes. Um, if you read George Weigel's "Witness to Hope," there's a description of the the diocese where John Paul II was in Poland. I think as in Krakow. I think he was the Archbishop there. I don't think he was a Cardinal yet. A um, little fuzzy on some of those dates when he returns to Poland after Vatican II, after the last session, he began, I think, a nine-year novena process to implement the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. He had a synod throughout his diocese so th- th- for those nine years to look at, here's the documents, how are we going to put them into place? And Weigel's description is just fascinating, that they had to build more seminaries and more monasteries because there were so many people entering religious life. Uh, I do I tried to find my copy of *Witness to Hope*, and I, I still haven't located it since I moved. So I couldn't check this number for you, but I'm going off my memory, which may not be exactly right. I believe, though, there were something like 900 uh, men in formation, either in seminaries or in monasteries, in uh, you know during this this process in in uh, or John Paul II's diocese. Um, so it was just absolutely bursting at the seams with vocations in a diocese where you had, you had two things going on. You had a, a participant in the council, Wotiwa, John Paul II, and a meaningful engagement with the documents themselves being implemented in his diocesan structure, right? Uh, so he brought the documents home and said, we've got to do these. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to to guide us. Let's get people involved, and let's set about living this vision. He did that, and his diocese exploded with vocations. Um, now, at the same time, many parts of the West, you know, in America, for instance, there were priests and nuns leaving their promises, leaving their orders, leaving, leave, leaving holy orders, leaving their religious communities in huge numbers, and I think that is a, a very scandalous reality, um, and it's very it's very sad. Um, and it does not mean that the, the documents of the Second Vatican Council, uh, you know, caused this problem. It was it was a matter of taking, taking the actual teaching of the council seriously um, versus, you know, getting caught up in sort of the spirit of the council. So I had mentioned in a previous episode, the very first one in our series on Vatican II, this book. Uh, that's it's not available yet for purchase, but I've I've gotten a chance to read it. It's called A Very Short Introduction Vatican II. It's by Sean Blanchard and Stephen Bullivant. Um, they offer sort of four paradigms for the interpretation of the council, the reception of the council, and I think it's really helpful just to kind of see that after the council, there's basically four different movements of uh, reactions to it. Um, so there's one is a, a traditionalist rejection where there's suspicion or rejection of either parts or the whole of the council based on the notion that it changed too much, that this was too much, too new, that it contradicts previous tradition, and so we reject it. Um, so that's that's one sort of school following the council is a traditionalist suspicion or rejection. There's a, a failure paradigm. Um, this group tends to be more progressive that, to say that you know the council was too late. It didn't do enough. It's it's too, it's, it's not enough, and it's and uh, the, the, there's more should have changed. So it was a failure. It was a great opportunity. You know we could have done so much to update the church, and it just didn't carry it far enough. Um, then there's what they call a spirit event paradigm, where they look at the council not as documents but as sort of a movement, a spirit, a feeling. Um, they praise the aggiornamento, the the openness. Um, But they, so they celebrate the Second Vatican Council. So there's traditionalist rejection, uh, a sort of progressive failure. You know, both of those groups say, yeah, I'm not too big on Vatican II. Either it was too much or not enough, right? Then there's celebration of the council as a spirit event that just really doesn't pay attention to the documents. And then there's a text continuity movement, which wants to say the text of the council is really what's important, not all of the swirling things that happen afterward and it's these documents which we need to work with to ensure that there is a continuity and not a radical break So i think those are really good helpful sort of paradigms for us um and there there certainly have been um you know good good fruits from the council um at the same time i want to be willing you know willing to to admit that it's it's difficult it's 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 been messy um, but that's again—that's just how councils tend to go. I will recommend another book um, for for those of you who just like book uh, <laughs> reading uh, homework suggestions. It's called Mass Exodus, also by Stephen Bullivant, who is a friend of mine. Uh, but but also, I mean, this book is just unbelievable. Um, really, really excellent study, basically on the causes of disaffiliation. And what he notes there is that there is clear evidence. Leading up to the council, so the late fifties into the early sixties, that things like mass attendance, baptism numbers, etc., were already trending down, and that when you take a coherent sociological approach to religion, it just becomes nearly impossible to say that the reason the church today is losing members is because of the Second Vatican Council, and that, you know, among other things. Every other liturgical, every other religious group, or nearly all of them, are in a significant downfall since the the peak in America of the of the late fifties. Um, the world has changed so much that it's almost impossible sociologically to imagine something like religion just not being impacted by it. And so his his big argument is that basically the entire world was just going through so many changes leading into the 60s that the results the the resultant the sort of downfall of religious practice is that's just the reality and that it, it it's it doesn't make a good argument to say that it was because the second Vatican council happened all of these things have fallen apart. And I'll make one last point here just to to, to wrap up. Um, we, ha- I think that we see so much complaining about Vatican II, um, particularly in online, you know, uh, Catholics who are, who are really active online. Um, they, they, they place a lot of blame on Vatican II, and it's easy to do that because, you know, things have changed since the 60s. Um, but it's also really important to remember that or to resist, rather, the idea that, you know, prior to Vatican II, there were no issues, there were no problems. People knew their faith, they were well-formed. Um, there's a priest in our diocese who who likes to, to, to say to me, you know, everybody who went nuts in the late 60s and started doing really weird liturgical things or teaching, you know, questionable things or, or just doing this poor catechesis based on human experience rather than on, than on doctrine, rather than the gospel— everybody who was part of that process of the church changing and departing from its mission, they were all formed prior to the council, right? They were all brought up probably in America, learning the Baltimore Catechism, memorizing things, knowing the commandments, you know, having uh, very clear understandings of, of all of the things that you want people to get good catechesis on. They had that, or they had what we today, what many people today will say. That's what we need. We need to go back to that because when people were doing that, everything was good. That's what everybody was doing, and after the council, those same people, right? However, it happened, began to depart drastically from the teaching of the gospel, let alone the teaching of the council. So it's it's a, a, an important reality just to recognize that any form of catechesis, training, liturgy, whatever can be received by people and still not have the effect that, it, that you would hope from it. So while it's easy to today kind of, you know, imagine what the 50s were like and say, man, if we could go back to that, I encourage you to really resist that idea, um, but rather recognize just the very real human failures that, that, that often accompany, uh, you know, that we see throughout history. If you know salvation history, you know how clear directives can be ignored and can lead to big problems. Can be messy and take a long time to clean up. Um, that's the story of the Bible, and, and real in a very real way, that's the story of the church. So we just did want to take uh, you know one episode out of this series to just sort of recognize those difficulties, those those complications with the council, um, but also to say that at least as a starting point, you know, here six, some sixty years later a good step for us is to go back and look at what the documents actually taught um, and to understand what the, what was the reality of what the council was calling for um, precisely because a lot of the problems that happened after the council have little or nothing to do with the actual documents of the council. So I hope you've enjoyed this um, conversation. Brian, uh, thank you so much for that uh, question. And um, thank you again for your time, and I look forward to continuing this series.